Een hele goede avond, middag, ochtend, good evening, day, good morning. Welcome to Talk Racing to Me with Naomi. This week, none other than freelance analyst and statistician Ashley Mayu joins me on these airwaves. To keep it short, this was just so much fun. We discussed about anything we could think of, such as Should the Breeders' Cup stay at one track? Are we retiring thoroughbreds too soon? Is the racing industry culture inclusive or exclusive? And how do you explain the sport to your friends and family? All that and so much more racing-themed topics and discussions between Ashley and I. I began by asking Ashley about the most exciting event coming up in the next two weeks, the Breeders' Cup. And she will be returning there to work for Horse Racing Radio Network. So how long has she been doing that? And how does one prepare for doing radio at arguably the Super Bowl in horse racing? First off, I think radio's different. I thought it was going to be a lot easier because you're not in front of the camera. I know. Obviously, we were both just in front of the camera recently for Preakness. And I think there's like an added pressure. But I actually find it harder because you have to kind of paint the picture that people visually can't see because they're listening, whether they're in their car or at home and they're doing other things. Um, But I I started working for HRN. This would be, I guess, uh, June of 2019. I went up for the Queen's Plate to Woodbine. And after the Queen's Plate, they asked if I wanted to go to the Breeders' Cup last year. So it was really awesome to go out to Santa Anita. It's a lot of work. Um, We do a show on Friday and Saturday and kind of the paddock reporter. So I'm in the paddock. Uh, When the races are completed, I'm right on the front stretch, uh, on the track, trying to see who I can grab for interviews. So as far as preparation, there's actually a lot that goes into it because you kind of have to work on the fly, but also kind of have an idea of, okay, these are kind of the storylines in racing. If I can grab so-and-so in between maybe race four and five, these are the questions I want to ask. So um, you have to be preparing and, and you have to actively do it. I usually start a couple of weeks in advance just because you know the major players and um, if horses are injured or they're not on the trail anymore, you can kind of uh, disregard some connections. But also has to be on the fly. You might see Manny Franco who just finished second by a nose and you have to go grab him and just you know kind of roll with it. So uh, in some ways, it's more difficult, like I said, from like the storytelling perspective and just kind of having to work on the fly, but it's actually a lot of fun. How long do the shows go on for on those two days? Uh, the Friday show is shorter. Saturday, I can't remember what we did last year. I think it was almost like a four-hour show. Uh, it was pretty long. Um, the schedule is on the website. You know, you think I would know these things, but I'm still just kind of getting acquainted now, um, looking more at kind of past performances and stuff for horses. But the Friday show, just because when you think about Breeders' Cup, Friday, there are some Breeders' Cup races, but a lot of them are on Saturday. So that's kind of how the shows work. The shorter, the shorter show is going to be on Friday and then the longer one on Saturday. So you start preparing weeks before. Do you arrive like in the week leading up so you can kind of see the horses work out on the track or what do you normally do? That would be ideal, um, but I do work a full-time job out of racing. So I have to be kind of uh, careful with that. So I'm not going to go there in advance for this to watch the workouts. Um, I do like now in the age of social media, we all know we can just pull out our phone and see kind of workouts and see it's obviously better to see the horses physically in person, but does at least help somewhat to kind of bridge the gap and I'll get to town on Thursday's the plan and then I'll leave Sunday. So it's a very quick trip. It's exhausting, but uh, it's it's so much fun. It really is, especially this year, you know, being at Keeneland. Um, I went to school in Lexington, Kentucky. A big part of it was because of the horses and uh, Keeneland's one of my favorite tracks. So uh, looking forward to it. 
So it's sort of like homecoming for you then. Yeah, it's kind of my second home. I would say Lexington is definitely my second home. You know, I spent most of my life in Buffalo and went away for about six years and four of them were in Lexington. And I think Lexington's a, a great place for me. It was far enough away from home that I could get away from my parents and they couldn't come see me all the time. Uh, an eight and a half hour drive definitely kind of prevents that. But for Lexington, you know, I love horses. You have horse country, but you still have a downtown environment. So I think you get the best of both worlds. And if you like to travel, I mean, there's so many places you can go within three or four hours. So to me, Lexington in a lot of ways is kind of a, a perfect spot for me. How long were you there for? Just for four years, just for my undergraduate degree. Um, I Like I said, that's a big reason I picked Transylvania University. A lot of people haven't heard of it, but it's a really small liberal arts school. It's right in downtown Lexington, just a couple blocks away from Rupp Arena. So if you're a Wildcats fan, you like UK, you know, we'd walk down to games and you're right downtown. So, you know, if you want to go out or you want to go out to dinner, you can always walk, which was really nice. Um, but for me, college, you know, they always say it's the best four years of your life. And I think a big part of it had to do with the city. It was just so much fun. Yeah, definitely miss Lexington a little bit myself, but didn't know your university before. I went to University of Kentucky for a equine nutrition model module when I was there for about six months. So I know that university, but I didn't hear of yours. Yeah, very small. I think when I was there, the total enrollment for all four years, so freshman to, I guess, senior year of college was about 1,300 students. Very, very small. But uh, I always wanted to actually go to the University of Kentucky, and then I ended up touring Transylvania University, and I fell in love with it. I loved the small school and the opportunities. There have been a lot of people that have gone there, and um, they've done stuff in horse racing. So I did meet a lot of people that were involved in the sport and made some, you know, uh, lifelong connections. And never expected that. I didn't even know the school was on the map until I got a flyer in the mail. But um, if it wasn't for Transylvania, which sounds weird, even though I didn't go for a degree in communications or anything equine related. Um, if it wasn't for Transylvania, I don't think I'd do anything in horse racing today. Wow, that's quite incredible. You said um, your parents are obviously quite far away and hence they can visit as often, but were they supportive of you later on going a bit more towards horse racing in terms of your career? I think my dad was. I don't want to say my mom wasn't. I don't want to throw her under the bus. Um, <laughs> I, I think it just comes from a, a passion thing. I mean, my dad loves horse racing and as a kid, we'd always go to the track and uh, my mom would go too and she'd enjoy herself, but not to the same level as my dad. Um, he's the one who kind of taught me on how to read the program or explained things to me. And I guess my curiosity grew from there. But I do think my mom likes that I've been able to balance both careers, uh, that I can you know, work my eight, eight to five, nine to five bank job during the week and still travel and follow my passions. And my dad's always supportive of either. Um, he, you know, he likes horse racing. He likes the other job. But I think he especially likes the horse racing more than my career. <laughs> well, we'll touch upon the various roles that you have uh, in as part of your normal day-to-day uh, -day life, because I know that you're combining, as you mentioned, a full-time job with a lot of other engagements. But we'll just circle back to the Breeders' Cup. How important to the horse racing industry in the United States, as well as across the globe, do you feel the Breeders' Cup is? And how do you explain it to, to the audience as well as to those outside of the industry. And I mentioned this to you before that I was trying to explain it to my boyfriend and his family who aren't in horse racing. What does the Breeders' Cup mean? You know, when you think about different sports, whether you like college sports or professional sports, you have the Super Bowl, you have the Stanley Cup, you have the NBA Finals. Um, to me, that's what the Breeders' Cup is. It's kind of the best of the best. It's a little different structure, right? Because you think of a horse race, you have – 
you don't have, you know, you have 10 horses maybe in the starting gate. So it's not the same as the NBA finals where you just have two teams, but um, it's the best of our product that's out there and they get to showcase their talent. Um, And I, and I like the Breeders' Cup actually in ways more than the Triple Crown, because I think we get to show off a bunch of things, your turf runners, your dirt runners, distance, sprinters, younger horses, older horses. So that's why for me, it's like the best of the best all come together and they have the, the spotlight for two whole days and it's the championships they are the world championships. And I love when horses come over from different continents to compete here. Uh, you know, I wish we actually traveled more overseas and vice versa. So it's always exciting to see horses come here and try this stage. Um, they don't often do that. So that's probably the best way I would describe it. I think it's very important. Um, these big wins in these races, uh, Obviously, there's a lot of money on the line, but in terms of breeding and where horses go after their racing career is over, these sort of classic wins do mean a lot. Yeah, very important for the championships awards or later on as well. The Breeders' Cup always seems to be the place where, you know, the deal gets sealed for Horse of the Year honors and vice versa. The Breeders' Cup being held at all these different tracks well I wouldn't say all these different tracks because there's a few tracks that have had the Breeders' Cup more often than not such as Santa Anita but how do you feel about that do you feel that that's a that's a good thing or would it be would it make more sense to stick with one or two tracks I think it should travel I know there's been kind of conversations especially probably in the last I don't know five to seven years that it should stay maybe at just a few tracks maybe a handful it rotates at three or four tracks I personally don't like that idea I think when this kind of all started, we saw that it traveled more. It actually went to Woodbine for a year. And I know kind of, you know, going across the border, that poses its own um, issues. But there's so many racetracks to kind of showcase. Now, we showcase the the best horses, but, you know, there are so many racetracks that I think should be kind of showcased too. And I think in the example, if you only had it at one track, I mean, not all dirt surfaces are the same. Not all turf courses are the same. And, you know, if you're the a horse that does race in multiple Breeders' Cup races, say you race this year and next year and it's at the same track and you don't like the track, you know, that can happen. I think at these higher levels, you might not see that as much. And some people argue that there there is no such bias. I do think it exists. So I think if we're going to kind of show off our product, we should do it at different venues because there are so many racetracks and um, you know, a lot of these championships, um, you think about these big horses, they travel all the time. Uh, Swiss Skydiver is a prime example of all the racetracks that she's visited in her career. It's a huge list. And I think that's what these horses should do. Oh, I agree with that. I think she's, everyone's been calling her a throwback horse, you know, taking back to when horses were racing every two weeks or much more frequently than we see now. And that's such a wonderful thing I think for our sport that we really get to know these horses and hopefully they stay into training a little bit longer which gets me to the next point that I'd love to discuss with you and this actually ties back in with some of the Europeans coming over or unfortunately not we've had some recent European retirements such as champion juvenile Pinatubo, Gayath, uh, 2000 Guinea winners Kamiko is going to be retired after he competes at the Breeders' Cup in the mile Question raised here, I was listening to Nick Luck's podcast. Um, he was saying, together with Lee Mothershead, are we breeding to race or racing to breed? And I thought this was such an interesting concept that they were talking about in terms of the European perspective because they had so many top-level horses being retired. 
How do you think this expresses itself in the USA, where we also quite frequently would see three-year-olds being retired? Yeah, I mean, I think the one this year that we're going to talk about is probably Honor AP. And if you look at more recent years, um, especially the Triple Crown winners, American Pharaoh has been a horse that's been talked about retiring earlier on in his career. Same with Justify. It's a it's a tough argument to kind of make and be one-sided on because you know, as someone that loves horse racing from a fan perspective, to me, some of the best race horses to watch are these older horses. Um, you know, horses take a while to mature. We race them at two years old. And I know um, in other countries, they kind of take more of a laid back approach early on in a horse's career because they're still developing. But when I think of, you know, these kind of classic horses, they raced past three. And that's when I, as a fan, I really like watching these older horses. So that's one side of the argument. Then the other side is now, if I had a horse like Justify and I was offered lots of money, you know, we're not just talking a couple million, we're talking tens of millions of dollars. Um, it's hard for me to sit and criticize someone, you know, not taking the money because it is also a business. Um, and, and I think that's a tough, uh, it's a tough call to make. Um, I'm not in that position and I don't have one of these stallions, but I, I think from the perspective of, um, Let's just talk about the Triple Crown winners. If you look at Justify, you know, when he won the Triple Crown, people were excited, not as excited because we had just had a Triple Crown winner just a few years prior, but we didn't see him as a four-year-old. And you think about kind of these other Triple Crown winners, the Seattle Sloughs, the Affirms, um, they did race as a four-year-old. And I think that's kind of what sets them apart, at least in my mind. And maybe a lot of people think that way, just because we saw them past four and we saw them be successful at the age of four, I should say, past three, at the, you know, in their four-year-old campaign. So I think for me, it kind of sets horses apart from being great or being spectacular. But from the breeding market, um, it, it's it's a tough money decision to make. Like I said, I can't sit here and um, criticize someone for making a, the business deal that's best for them. But I do think kind of in terms of the sport, um, keeping these horses around longer when it's suitable, um, I think that's something that I think we should try to work towards. And there's other arguments too about the thoroughbred maybe not being as sturdy as they once were. Um, you'll see so many articles about the breeding industry and that's one of the things they say. And you had mentioned about some of these horses used to race every two weeks. Um, just even looking at the number of starts horses make now compared to what they did 30 years ago, it's dramatically decreased. So it's, I think, kind of a, a couple factors like you mentioned, um, this whole breed to race, race to breed argument. Um, I think it also goes with the stability of the racehorse and things like that. So it's tough. But from a personal perspective, I wish we saw these horses on the racetrack a lot longer. Yeah, from a fan point of view, all I want is for them to race on as a four-year-old and get the chance to compete with the classic generation that has come after them and more frequently compete with the other older horses and really stamp themselves as that champion racehorse instead of you know, like I was like Justify, even though it was a phenomenal Triple Crown winner, we didn't see him much. So, of course, he will be remembered. But to have a connection with a horse and as a fan, to really see a horse lay it all down is when you see them put in these places that it's not always certain they're going to win. And I feel like the current culture is a bit more in terms of like if you're trying to make a stallion, which I completely understand, is placing them in positions that that can happen, that they have the best chance of succeeding at that. And that sometimes includes trying to make sure they stay unbeaten. And if that means they're not going to start every week or two, which also is not the case at all anyway, but not every month or whatever it is, then 
that happens. And I do understand that from the business point of view. Right. But as a fan, I want to see them run. Yeah. And I think too, you know, especially this past year uh, with the, you know, we've been talking kind of the stallions, but, you know, about the Phillies and mares and seeing Monomoy Girl and Midnight Bizou kind of continue their careers. I think that's been exciting to see because as of the recent trend, we haven't been seeing that. And I even think back further back, um, Zenyatta and Rachel Alexander and everyone kind of had a side, which one do you like more? I kind of liked Zenyatta more because she was, you know, getting older and she was still racing and still performing well. I don't think these horses have to go out and win every race from my perspective to make them an all-time great. Sure, if they can, you know, stay undefeated in their career, that's one feat. But I like these horses that continue to race. And you look at Rachel Alexandra, they campaigned her past three. I think her best season was her three-year-old season, but I don't think her, you know, next campaign took anything away from her in my opinion maybe you know if she was a stallion other people would disagree with that and her breeding potential on that side of things but as a broodmare you know it's it's a different argument i think with the girls but from a fan i mean some of my favorite horses yes they're probably geldings for that reason but they are the older horses i think that was something that lee mother's head was applauding as well saying that these top some of these top level horses back in Europe were geldings and that he loved that because then you know that you're going to see them again next year if they stay sound which is wonderful and this is something that I was thinking about earlier that of course retirement because a horse has sustained an injury is very logical but just looking at some of the schedule that the horses in the U.S. follow but as well as in in Europe not always like some sometimes horse in Europe get in in my perspective, it seems like horses in Europe get a tad more of a break than the American horses do. But the comparison I was thinking of is that, for example, a mare like Wings in Australia, she ran on season after season because in Australia, it is very normal to give horses a break. They call it spelling. So a horse would go out into a field for three, four months before they pick back training up. And that allows microfractions to heal, a horse to put on weight, which then can you know be nicely trained off of. I really enjoy that. And I'm wondering what it, why in the U.S. that isn't as common. What would be your take on that? I don't know if it just has to do with calendar in general and kind of how the race calendar works. I think it, it also depends, too, on the level of the horse. Um, and maybe now, especially here, like we had mentioned before, um, you might be racing less, but you kind of have set increments in between your races and how you train them. But, and I also think it, like I said, it depends on level because if you're taking stakes horses away from it, and I'm even talking about, you know, very pricey claiming horses or allowance level horses, they might get the winter off or their connections may just put them on the farm for a bit. Or like you said, maybe there's something just minor. Let's just give them the time off and, you know, bring them back and see if we can bring them back. Um, I, I don't know if it's just kind of how it's been, you know, if you look at years ago, like we had said, they raced all the time and there weren't all these breaks. And now we're kind of just spacing it out and not doing long breaks, but maybe you're giving a horse more time in between starts. But it, it, it's interesting how different the philosophies. I know you're obviously familiar with both, you know, racing here and overseas. And I'm more focused on here, probably because the time change. I can never stay up late to watch races and things like that. But it, it's almost in some sense, they're the same world, but they're also very different. I agree with that. The difference in timing makes it very, very tricky to follow <laughs> both jurisdictions. Um, the only times if I've been, you know, 12 hour difference, I would only sit up if like Wings was running into Cox Plate again. Yeah, I'd have to set an alarm and I have done that before, but it's just, it's very different. So I commend everyone that kind of follows both, um, 
racing here and overseas because it's something that I uh, I can't do. <laughs> well, let's get into a little bit more of your background as well as what you're currently doing. You have a full-time job, yet you're also doing frequent handicapping hits for Fort Erie as well as some other things. Uh, how do you combine it all? I don't know sometimes. Um, lack of sleep, which is one of my favorite things behind probably eating in the racetrack. Um, you know, I just, the big thing is I kind of have to have boundaries on what is my time for my real job and what's my time for my side gigs, as I call them. I don't have like a really formal term for it. But, you know, I work for a bank um, as an analyst. I work in the risk division for the headquarters of a top 30, top 35 US bank. And, you know, kind of eight to five, that's my working hours. And if I have to handicap for 40 area, I'm doing it as soon as I'm done at work. Or if I have a work trip, it's on the weekends. So it's uh, it's a tough balance because you also want to have some more of a normal life outside of work. And for me, the side gigs are, they're fun for me. Um, they're still work, obviously, but they're kind of my escape from the real job. So it's a lot to balance, especially, um, and surprisingly during COVID, I thought that I wouldn't be doing anything, especially with me being American. I don't live in Canada and that's where Fort Erie is. So I haven't been able to cross the border. So one good thing out of it is I can still help out Fort Erie and still do things for them because of the digital age. I can, you know, kind of record my segments here and they'll play them in between races. So that's been nice. But travel has still actually been decent. Um, kind of living in New York, there's still a couple states that I could travel to and not be on the advisory list. So I did go to the Meadowlands a couple times this summer to work their big race days. Um, it's like I said, it's a lot to manage, but it's honestly been um, a nice escape from the real job. Well, you're a wonderful addition to whichever track you're at on the weekends. Uh, I feel like you're the go-to person to bring in on the big days because I know that's what happens um, with the Maryland tracks, Laurel Park and, and Pimlico, and you, of course, joined us. So you do a bit for the Stronach tracks as well. Uh, how did that come about? It's an honestly a crazy story. I can't even make it up. Um, it was after my first season at Fort Erie. So that would have been the summer and fall of 2018. It's kind of rolling into the winter about January of 2019. Um, Dan Torgman from America's Best Racing had sent me a message and said, have you ever heard of this gentleman? Um, his name's Dave Joseph. Obviously, you know, Dave Naomi. And I said, yeah, I, I know who he is. And they said, well, they want to talk to you maybe about work or something like that. Can I give your contact information? So I said, sure. And Dave and I had had a couple conversations, wanted to know if Fort Erie was full-time. And I said, no, they race um, kind of a shortened meet, just 40 days, but I do have a full-time job. We started talking. He said, what about weekend work? And I said, I think that works as long as it do doesn't interfere with my actual job. Um, and so they sent me down for, I guess it had been 2019 Winter Carnival. And it was crazy story because he says, you're going to work alongside the MIG. And I'm like, Richard Migliori. Like I can remember being a kid and my dad would always say, you should get someone's autograph. So I just go up to the rail wherever we were, typically at Saratoga or Woodbine and say, hey, can I have your autograph? So I'm getting ready to pack up. And my dad had given me this photo. He's like, you have to take this to the MIG. It's, it's a photo of you and him when he won the Dominion Day handicap at Woodbine on Funny Side. So I took it to Laurel with me for my first gig. I'm like, this is really embarrassing. And uh, Richard thought it was like the coolest thing ever that this little girl that was a fan of horse racing was now kind of doing something on TV. And from there, um, after that weekend, I guess it went well enough. Um, a week later, I'd gotten a call if I wanted to come for Preakness. So uh, Preakness 2019 was my first time at Pimlico and my first Triple Crown event with my dad. I got to bring him along, which is really exciting. And 
then from there, you know, when Maryland racing, if someone was out of town or there was a big race day and they needed another uh, on-air analyst, that's where I kind of came to fill in. I think that's the coolest story, by the way, about Mig. He is such a wonderful character. So knowing him a little bit, he would have indeed loved that. Well, I was embarrassed. It's like, wow, let me take a photo of myself when I was, I don't know, like 11 or 12 years old and just like show it to someone and they're going to think you're crazy, right? And my dad's like, he'll get a kick out of it. And I'm just like, okay, dad, yeah, you're right about everything. As a typical, you know, child would say to their parent when you think they're kind of out there. And he's just like, can I take a picture of this? I'm like, yeah, sure. Because I think he had signed it too, but not that day, which would have been even weirder. But like earlier, you know, down the line, many years ago, he'd signed this photo. I told him, and, and it's like one of my favorite parts about racing. I said, yep. And after you won, you gave me a pair of your goggles. And just little things like that kind of makes a fan for life. So people like the Meg and other riders, you know, that helps you fall in love with the sport. And they're part of the reason I love the game so much. So it was one of the coolest experiences I've had. It sounds weird, but just kind of showing up at Laurel and being like, wow, I have this picture from so many years ago. And, you know, I think they had posted it on social media from fans to like colleagues and stuff. It, it was kind of mind blowing. It's incredible. How old were you at the time when the photo was taken? Probably like 11 or 12, maybe. I mean, I was young. I was young. I was like a chubby little kid. And just then I I can see it now in a pink tank top, just standing (laughs) alongside him. Um, Because that was kind of one of the horses I loved to follow as a kid was Funny Side. And I got to see his last two wins, one of which was at Woodbine. It was a big deal. And, you know, the MIG came up there to ride him. So, yeah, it was like a, a crazy moment that, you know, the MIG really got a kick out of. He loved it and he thought it was one of the coolest things ever. So um, definitely shows you how those little moments can really change, change at that time, change my life as a kid. But those moments are what make up the memories and, and ignite the passion. I just remember seeing Franco win the lockage at Newbury and that was like in the first or second year I, I was working in racing. And I remember having chills going down my spine thinking this is just incredible because uh, the lock is over a mile it's a straight mile at Newbury so all they do is they break and he just comes thundering past and all I thought was I'm pretty sure I've seen something incredibly special and even now like so many years later I would still go back and think yeah that's I already loved horse racing but those kind of things make you want more in a way. So I I love that. Is that how you sort of got into the sport and thought maybe you wanted to do more or? No, it's kind of weird when I look back on it. As a kid, I can remember being the kid kind of just, you know, climbing the the paddock fence, which you're not supposed to do, just peeking my head through the, the rails and just, oh, dad, I like that one. You pick out the gray horse or you pick out the number that you like. And you know, even when I was probably like five years old, I was asking my dad, what's this mean in the form? What's seven to two mean on that flashing? What's why is the seven to two flashing on the odds board? What does this mean? Um, and I started just kind of asking questions, and he would teach me, and he gave me an allowance. Um, he started off at two bucks a race, was allowed a, a dollar, uh, exact a box with two horses, and then I convinced him to kind of up it. The older I got, we got up to three horse boxes. Or if we were at Saratoga, I was given a little bit more money. It was my betting allowance, and I just wanted to learn more. And I, I honestly never ever thought I would do anything, at least on kind of like the television radio side of horse racing. It never crossed my mind once. Uh, First time would have been really probably in grad school. So as a kid, I was never thinking that. I thought about maybe going out to Arizona and going to the the program out there, the racetrack industry program uh, at U of A. And 
I just then decided kind of to go on the academic path and go into, uh, originally I was going to go for biochemistry and then I switched into mathematics. But I think one thing you'd ask about my parents, like the support, you know, they said, we like that you like horse racing, but maybe you should go get a degree in something else. And you can always try to find a way into horse racing later. And I kind of let the the idea go. I mean, I did go to school in Lexington and a big part of it had to do with the horses. And I would help some friends that would chip into Keeneland in the mornings before class here and there, um, whether it was just helping them, you know, walk hots or just, you know, kind of just trying to learn everything that I could from the limited amount of time that I had. But it really wasn't until grad school that I kind of started thinking about it a little bit. And then I, when I ended up accepting the job in my hometown, um, that's when kind of Fortigree got involved. An owner there by the name of Jerry Catalano had reached out to the race office and said, how do I tell someone in higher up that there's this girl that really likes to handicap Fortigree? And he said, she's, she's not bad. She's okay at it too. And they reached out, wanted to see if I wanted to write a tip sheet for their website. And I did, started doing that. And I think my first time in 2018 on opening day at the track, they put me on TV for a race because they didn't have anyone as a paddock analyst for a couple of years. And then I kind of never left. I'd show up after work when I could or on Sundays when I was off from my bank job. And that's how that really started. It was never on my radar that someday I would be doing anything on TV or radio for horse racing. Well, you're doing pretty well at it. So I'm glad that you're involved. And I very much understand where your parents were coming from. And that's similar to what my mother sort of suggested as well. Because when I was getting my degree in psychology, I chose to do it in England so I could continue riding thoroughbreds in the morning because in the Netherlands, it wasn't as big. And then I thought if I'd stay in England, I can go back to um, Malcolm Bastard, who's the oldest international sales consigner in the UK. And they break in 300 a season so I wanted to go back and I did so whilst doing a degree so I completely get why you went to Lexington Kentucky to sort of try and combine it so that's actually quite amusing how in a way our paths were a little bit similar Uh, this is a fun question that I'm only asking because I know that to me it's a memory that I remember who was the first person you ever interviewed so I believe the first actual interview that I ever did at Fortier, I, I say this in two reasons. The first one that I did, like that was going to be normal, you know, uh, I don't want to say normal, but, you know, regular trainers and stuff at the track was a trainer by the na- name of John Sims. He was our leading trainer last year who um, I-, I love to describe him. He's a he's a retired police officer. Um, he was on, I think, the, the force for about 20 years. And then he went into training racehorses and he does a great job, but he's kind of like my, I don't know, my grandpa at the racetrack. And so he always gives me a hard time and stuff. So he had won, uh, he had won a cup race, which is one of our stakes races. That's more geared for horses that have made a couple starts at the meet specifically at Fort Erie. And so I had to interview him and I thought he was going to give me a hard time the entire time. I'm like, he's going to embarrass me, but he didn't. I interviewed his rider on the horse that day. I believe it was Kurt Johnson, but Crazy enough that like the first big interview I did was actually at Fort Erie and it was John Velasquez. Um, He had come to ride in the Prince of Wales Stakes, which is our version of kind of the Preakness. It's the second leg of the Canadian Triple Crown. And I had already, you know, known John, so it took the pressure off. But it was it was a crazy experience because working for a small racetrack, um, we don't get riders like that in town rarely. Um, You know, John, I think he had maybe been there one time before, but you know, this is kind of cool for the the local fans at Fort Erie to have this caliber of rider, you know, that rides on all these graded stakes races all the time at Fort Erie. You just don't get that. Um, so that was really, really interesting and a lot of fun. But those would be the ones that kind of 
stick out. And those were the first, literally the first three that I did kind of in order. I think they were just a couple weeks apart. Well, Johnny Velasquez is such a wonderful representative of the jockey colony. So I'm sure that interview went very well. Uh, I always love interviewing him. Looking at the future, you, of course, still have your full-time job. But as we mentioned, you do so many different things. What would be your end goal? Do you want to move into horse racing broadcasting on a full-time basis? Or are you kind of happy to do it as your fun weekend activity? Although it seems like so much more, though. <laughs> it's, it's a lot more than that. I mean, I'm really passionate about it. Um, I struggle with this question and how to answer it, because I think depending on the day, my my answer sometimes wavers and changes. I think I'm happy that I didn't um, maybe rush into things and go right into racing in any sort of career capacity. And I always have my degree. Um, and I think that makes it kind of, if I want to leave, I want to leave the finance industry, it makes it easier to leave, because I know I always have that degree. Um, I always have my, you know, my bachelor's and my master's kind of backing me up. If I change my mind and decide maybe horse racing isn't for me, I think part of it also just has to do with the longevity of the sport. Um, I know you're very aware of this, Naomi. Sometimes, you know, there are questions, how long is horse racing going to be around or some tracks going to fold? And if, you know, if a racetrack folds there, there's jobs at stake. Um, you know, the horsemen, the grooms, everyone, everyone at the racetrack could lose their jobs and maybe not have anywhere to go after that. So, I struggle with that. I do think long-term, the one thing I can say for sure is I do want to eventually move full-time into racing, but I'm not sure that would be necessarily on-air talent or being on the radio or anything like that. I think I'm so passionate about racing that I'd love to leave the sport better than I found it. So I think maybe being more involved in um, kind of doing different reform or racetrack management, that would probably be the the end goal for me. So I don't know what the middle looks like, but I know that's kind of like where I would see myself down the road. Well, that's a, yeah, that's a very interesting answer. And you kind of hit the nail on the head with saying, you know, the longevity of the sport, that's definitely something that I sometimes worry about. And I think any young person that loves horse racing, like you and I do, and, and want to make the sport better or leave it better than we found it, it is worried, worrying about, you know, can we sustain this? Are, you know, in the long, in the long term, are there going to be challenges that are going to be too big to overcome? And, and how can we help with that? And is it a viable career prospect for, you know, 40 years down the line? Gosh, I feel like we're sounding really young there, but I think we're going to work for another 40 years, aren't we? I think we're going to have to. I don't think there's going to be an option unless I hit the lottery. I think I'm going to be working for a, for a long time. Student loans are not cheap, <laughs> but it, it's a tough call because I think there needs to be more people that are willing to say, you know what, this job might not be there forever, but maybe I can try to make a difference for the sport. And maybe we have to kind of be those different difference makers if that's what our passions are. I, I do think the sport does have a lot of issues. And I also think there's probably some negative portrayal of different things in the racing industry. So education's a huge thing. And um, yeah, long-term, that's that's my goal. I, like I said, I don't really know in between where I see myself and what my, my role in racing will be. But I think whenever I am um, retiring, I hope it's from a job in racing where I can say, you know what, I did leave thoroughbred racing better than I found it. I'll just ask you this question again in 40 years time when we're both <laughs> getting old and nearing our retirement and I'll just be like, wherever we both are. Probably I'll a racetrack, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we both be sitting on this bench at the racetrack trying to do the form, trying to make some money. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably the most accurate place I could see for sure. 
Yeah, I, I agree. It's um, it's a it's a big challenge, and I feel like we are, especially in the current day and age, trying to address these things and address whatever we're struggling with. And I hope, I hope that that's gonna carry us into the future a little bit more than and give us a bit of gosh confidence in a way because i i love horse racing and i know you do too and the stories that come out of it and and the the hope and life that it can provide people with like i feel incredibly grateful that horse racing has taken me across the globe and allowed me to be close to these amazing animals but that doesn't take away the worry of the industry itself and the future now I've, i was very lucky that i was a part of the godolphin flying start which is designed to hopefully uh, educate young people in the industry with you know the skills necessary to help the industry move forward but that doesn't take away that some of the challenges for example you know looking at peter coming up against us and and sort of the the general public perception is not something that's easy to change this is, this is an interesting concept and obviously i didn't brief you on this one so if you don't know how to answer you can just say so but talking about the public perception and how i feel that our current culture and our current generation of, of young adults growing up they are looking at everything under the microscope and this is not just you know, horse racing and, and possible injured horses or horse deaths. This is anything they do. This is the flights they take. This is the companies that they work for. This is the, the products they consume. They want everything to be transparent, accountable, and ethical. And I feel like that is something that, of course, is also transpiring through to our industry. 100%. I think that's just kind of our generation and the younger crowd um, with the kind of the day and age that we have, everything is so accessible. So when certain things aren't accessible for whatever reason, people, I think their curiosity grows. And I think then from there, um, they have every right to be um, upset in a lot of a lot of ways. Um, I even recently kind of experienced this. Um, you know, I, I won't go into the details, but there was a um, originally like a, a suspension on a horse and the suspension was appealed and they were kind of given a stay. And this information is really hard to track down. There's just not one database that's kind of open source that anyone can go on and find this information. I think that's kind of where the rumor mill goes from there. And since the, since the answer isn't available, let's make another story up to go along with it. Um, you know, that just has to do with technology in the world today. Everyone can figure out everything. That's the joys of just saying, oh, you don't know that? You can Google it. I mean, how many times do you hear that about everything? I tell my parents, you you don't know how to work your iPad, you can Google it. There's a solution out there. And I think people just expect all this knowledge to be out there. And the transparency thing, you know, you'd mentioned kind of horse dust, Peter. Now the big thing is the the whipping rules and how you can use the whip. And um, I think transparency is a huge part of it. But I also think another issue is we want reform and a lot of people push for maybe a uniformed kind of governing body. But I think if if that's the direction we're going to go in, we need to sample all different people in the sport on their opinions but be- before a decision is made. Because I feel like a lot of the time uh, public perception gets kind of misconstrued or people get upset because they don't feel that their opinion was represented or was listened to when these decisions were made. And I think that's a huge problem in horse racing that we're seeing right now as people don't feel like their voice is being heard and they feel that decisions that are being made are not necessarily being made by people who have the most 
knowledge on that particular subject. So there's there's a lot of issues. It's transparency. It's kind of who's making the decisions. And it's going to be, I think, a long process till people are comfortable with the changes or, you know, we get the changes that the sport really needs. Um, but, you know, one thing to start with is transparency. And there are some things that I think definitely should be more accessible to uh, the general public. I agree with that. But it's, it's possibly also the case that when you're talking about, for example, the racing industry in the United States, it is so vast and there are so many different states with their own racing <laughs> governing bodies involved. And I felt like when we visited the U.S., that was the first thing we recognized as being one of the challenges that you want those uniform regulations and you want, like you mentioned, transparency, like a website where you can find these things and for everything to be uniform. And that is definitely going to take a while. But I know that you have to leave soon-ish. So we'll end it on a bit more of a higher note. Um <laughs> I feel like as two young females in the sport that both don't have any family that is working in horse racing. I know that your family loves horse racing. Mine knows about it because of me. I wouldn't <laughs> say they love it, but they know about it, it exi existence and have been to the tracks. But I think it's really encouraging to see that for me looking around, like I've worked with some incredible female presenters, female handicappers, producers, and I'm not just saying, you know, female, but also younger people coming up through the industry. And I think that's such a wonderful thing. So us, you know, talking about the challenges of the industry, I feel like there's something positive to look forward to as well. Yeah, I do think, you know, you mentioned there's the the female side of things and just the the younger side. I think in a lot of ways, um, the the younger crowd is kind of getting their their chance to shine. And you see this in not just on air talent and radio, but you see it with um bloodstock groups. You see a lot of younger faces. You even see now um, racing partnerships. You're getting younger people. And I think for any sort of um, stability and sustaining the future of racing, we do need to get the younger people involved. And I think by having younger people in the game to kind of market it and showcase all the great things about it, it is a good thing. Um, you speak about kind of, you know, women in racing. I personally feel like there are a lot of women in racing. I don't think um, that I'm not saying that there's too many or anything like that, but there, there are a lot. And you, you see it a lot on on air talent, for example. I mean, you look at TVG, they have a lot of females. I um, you look at all these different tracks, whether it's Indiana or you look at Gulfstream, uh, there's a lot of female presence. And I think, you know, some people, if you ask them, maybe our generation that haven't been to the racetrack, their kind of view of the racetrack is what you'd see in a black and white movie or it's kind of the old boys club. And I don't think that's true. And I don't feel like if I go to the racetrack, anyone necessarily looks at me different. Um, if I start handicapping a race, sometimes they're a little shocked, like, oh, you're you're a female and you, you gamble. And I go, yeah, I, I am. Sorry to shock you. Sorry, that's so shocking. But I never have felt like it's a negative thing. And I think the greatest thing I can say about um, specifically all the women, I feel like everyone's really supportive. I'll use you as an example. I know we had chatted before, but Coming down to Preakness, we had never met before, but anything that I needed or questions that I had, you know, I could ask you. And, you know, we all want each other to kind of be successful. Um, yes, we kind of have a, the same job in a lot of ways, right, or the job duties. But I do feel like it's a pretty um, great culture that kind of embraces one another. So I've I loved it. I loved being kind of a young female in the sport and um, trying to showcase what I love about racing because I think there's so much good in the sport that more people need to kind of see. Yeah, completely 
view this the same way as you. Like I have nothing to add here. That's that's what I wanted to highlight. The fact that for me, looking at the female presence here in the US, it, it is very prevalent. And I don't feel like anyone looks at me differently for being a female handicapper. I think the only weird looks I got was maybe when we were still running at Laurel, I would sometimes go and place a bet really quickly in between. If I like <laughs> was in a paddock, that's kind of what I do. And people will kind of look at me going, what is she doing? I'm like, I'm placing a bet. It's okay. <laughs> but it's, I agree with you. It's so wonderful to see all these young people coming up. And I feel like Maybe, you know, I, I do think that's the same in Australia. I, I think in, in England, there's now more people coming up as well. And I think I just wanted to highlight that as being one of the positives of our industry that in a way people have viewed it as being, like you mentioned, maybe an old boys club or maybe a, an industry that might be dictated by, you know, is your family in racing or not? Um, someone was using the word nepotism to me the other day and I was like well actually <laughs> hold on <laughs> because I don't come from a racing background you don't come from a racing background and I feel like I've been very much welcomed into the sport because horse racing rewards people that work hard but continue to do so even though if they have setbacks I agree I, I won't lie I mean there's been a couple of times maybe I don't know, not as much recently, but in, in years past, maybe I felt like someone kind of, I don't know, lifted their their nose at me because I wasn't born in the sport. But I, it's been so far and few between that I don't sit there and ever really think about it, uh, maybe once or twice ever. Whereas I think a lot of people actually respect that I maybe wasn't born in the game and that I, you know, they're kind of like, oh, you learned all this from your dad from just going to the racetrack. And I said, yes. And, you know, I've done other things to kind of gain knowledge. And I won't lie. There's a lot of things that I don't know or I'm trying to learn more about just because I, I didn't grow up in it. But that's what I like. I like to learn. I never want to be bored. Um, you know, people always make fun of me because I went to school for math because they're like, wow, math must really not like yourself. Like that's boring, but it, it's part of the challenge of getting a problem and it's really difficult. But in that case, you know, when you accomplish it, you feel like this feeling of accomplishment and you're proud that you did it. Um, in horse racing, like I've liked kind of teaching myself some stuff because it is like a sense of accomplishment and I'm proud of myself for doing that. So yeah, I, I think the sport is really in, um, inclusive and embraces people. And I think one thing that we can maybe improve on it. I know a lot of people feel like they can come to the track, but the track is really overwhelming for someone that's never been there. There's a lot going on. There's entertainment, there's horse racing, there's a, a post parade. They don't know what that is, or the horses are getting saddled. And maybe as a sport, we can do a better job of teaching people. And I think that's the direction that we're moving in. And I really respect that. You see a lot of um, tracks now kind of have ambassadors or I think at Keeneland, the term is bedologist. They have people there that are there to educate others on horse racing. And that's what we need to do because as a group, I do think the sport is really inclusive. Maybe little areas need improvement, but I think if we can continue to do that, it kind of ties back with, to what we said earlier about just kind of the longevity of the sport. And hopefully it'll be around for the rest of our lifetime and future generations. And that would be wonderful indeed. And I was going to mention the pedologist at Keeneland as well. And making the sport a little bit less intimidating because especially uh, a lot of my friends they don't know much about horse racing so they think that it's this sport that only you know uh, I literally quoted my best friend here saying oh isn't that something for you know the English aristocrats to be involved in <laughs> and you know for that's obviously a European point of view and I know that's different in in the US but it's good to make it accessible and to allow everyone to share the joys and I think 
allowing people to get close to the horse. For example, I know that some of the outriders there let the children pet their ponies. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like such silly little things. But those things I feel are so important to remember that the sport is about the horses and the wonderful athletes that work with them, prepare them and ride them. And to really keep highlighting that. So well, actually, I know that you have to go. Thank you so much for your insight and for for telling your story. I do hope we get the chance to work together again soon. I hope so. I'll need a vacation this winter when it's snowing and cold and miserable. And I know it won't be much better in Maryland, but it'll still be more south. So hopefully I will see you sooner rather than later. Sounds good. Doors always open if it's snowing or not. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Thanks, Naomi. Make sure to go and follow Ashley on Twitter. That is at Ashley underscore Mayu. Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y underscore M-A-I-L-L-O-U-X. Her insight is invaluable. And I hope I spelled that correctly, Ashley. As always, massive thanks to the entire In The Money team. And this week, a special mention goes out to PTF for giving me the In The Money whiskey. I have to pick a memorable occasion to give that one a, a good taste. As the show goes out on Friday, I was a tad swamped. That means it is exactly two weeks to the 2020 British Cup. Oh dearie, this will be quite something and I can't wait. Also, if Magical will line up in the British Cup turf, I am going to follow her around the entire week. Pat, head traveling lad for Aidan O'Brien, you better be ready for this. Last time I saw her was when she won the Group 1 Tattersalls Gold Cup at the Curra in Ireland in May 2019. She went on to win another five Group 1 races after that. Just making sure you're all familiar with her form. Her Irish Champion Stakes victory over Gayath two starts back was something to behold. I will let everyone get on with their day. And don't forget... Plenty of Breeders' Cup content coming your way as of next week. That's the plan, anyway. I do have a a day job, and that includes this weekend's Maryland Million Day at Laurel Park, headlined by Harper's first ride, and Maryland champion trainer Claudio Gonzalez looking for a first win in the Maryland Million Classic, which also goes for the jockey, Angel Cruz. 12 races including eight stakes and four starter stakes. Get stuck in, guys. See you next week. 